0: APU American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to the Intellectable Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Deal. Today we're talking about the exciting future of space exploration and space commerce over the next few decades. My guest today is Dr. Dan Britt, who is Pegasus Professor of Planetary Science at the University of Central Florida. Director for the Center for Lunar and Asteroid Surface Science and director of the Exolith Lab. Dan, welcome to Inelectable and thank you for being our very first guest on our very first episode.
1: Well, thanks very much, Gary. I appreciate the invitation and the chance to have a chat.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, I want to get into quite a few topics related to space exploration, space commerce, the work that the Exolith Lab is doing in conjunction with UCF and NASA. But before we do that, I definitely want to touch upon something that you had mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that I thought was fascinating to cover. And that is the fact that in your early career, you were, and correct me if this is in any way inaccurate, an ICBM missile launch officer for the United States Air Force. Is that right? That's correct. Oh, boy. So... Tell us about what that's like. I'm imagining you sitting in a room underground waiting for a command to do something that you hope you never have to do.
1: That's pretty much exactly what it is. Actually, a very boring job. Huh. You're on alert for 24-hour shots two or three times a week, and uh, you're in a fairly remote location. My base was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and so I would drive out into the wilds of the Great Plains, and my launch control center was literally in the middle of nowhere.
0: Hmm. Lots of crossword puzzles, I would guess.
1: I read a lot. The base had a pretty good library. And so I was a reader and I read voraciously because in the 24 hours, there was maybe two or three hours worth of work to do. And the rest of the time you were just monitoring status.
0: Now, we talked about this previously, but refresh my memory in terms of how, to the extent that it's declassified, of course, how that process works. If the United States government decided that it was time to launch for whatever reason, someone has to call you, as I understand it, and it's a two-person process to, or at least at the time you were there, to initiate a launch. It's not something you could do, in other words, on your own uh, volition.
1: Yeah, it's not something you do on your own nickel. The Launch Control Center has a crew of two officers. So it takes two officers to put a launch vote into your missiles from your launch control center. And then you have to have another launch control center put another launch vote in before that actually activates things. Gotcha. And those are only activated by command of the president.
0: So the codes are not something that you would have. You'd have to receive those. So even if, for example, there was a a conspiracy or a collusion between two missile launch officers you couldn't independently decide amongst yourselves, hey, we're going to launch today?
1: Well, you could. It takes two officers to put a launch vote in, but you'd need two others and some other launch control center to also put launch votes in in order to actually initiate a launch.
0: Ah, okay. So it's almost like a four-person process.
1: Yeah. And you do have verification codes there so that you know you're getting the right code. So
0: how does a... U.S. Air Force ICBM missile launch officer become a professor and scholar in the field of planetary science?
1: Well, you need something else to do with the rest of your life after you do a few years in the Air Force. And I thought exploring space would be interesting. So I got into it, got a PhD, and was lucky enough to be able to do some interesting research and end up in the University of Central Florida in Orlando.
0: Is that where you went to school or where did you do your your doctorate work?
1: No, I, uh, I started at the University of Washington and I actually started in economics. So I have a master's in economics and decided at the ripe old age of 32 that I wanted to try science and went back to school, got a bachelor of science in geology from the University of Washington again, and then was able to go to Brown and get my PhD there.
0: Sounds like we have that much in common. I found an interest in space science at about the same age, 32, 33. And uh, I'm finishing the master's degree here at American Public University in in space science. So fascinating.
1: I was the oldest graduate student at Brown when I was was there in the 80s.
0: Yeah, it feels a little odd as you get into your 30s and everyone is uh, (laughs) starting their careers and you're turning the corner on maybe a second career.
1: The first semester, though, I ended up sitting next to this guy from China who was also getting a geology PhD. And he was one year younger than I was. And I told him, well, that's that's pretty old for a graduate student, Uh, what's the story? And he said, well, I started my undergrad at the regular time back in the 70s, but then the Cultural Revolution hit and the schools were closed or collapsed. And at the end of the Cultural Revolution, they sent me into exile for nine years in Tibet. Oh boy. And I thought, wow. I told him, wow, that's a great excuse.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Well, at least you weren't alone there. Yeah. Heck of an interesting story for him, too, as well. So which aspects of your work as a professor and a scholar in this field do you enjoy most? Do you do most of the teaching and and find the most joy in that or the research element?
1: Well, mostly it's in watching the development and participating in the development of space exploration, and the development of the space economy. And all of that is very much in its infancy, but it's something that you can directly intervene in and, and hopefully have some positive impact.
0: So you brought the subject up, so I'll address sort of the elephant in the room. Do you see the future of space exploration and perhaps even space economy, space commerce, being a government-led effort, or is this private sector trend going to stick?
1: Well, I think that It really is going to be led by the private sector. The big revolution in space exploration right now had essentially nothing to do with the government. It was Elon Musk deciding he wanted to be in the rocket business, and he was able to get government funding along the way, but the government actually was not that keen on him doing it, and certainly the existing rocket companies, Boeing and Lockheed, really didn't like him intervening in their little patch. Hmm. I
0: can imagine I've struggled to sort of define this without propping Elon up on a pedestal. I will say, you know, I I own a Tesla. I'm a huge fan of most of what he's done. He's obviously a sort of a controversial character in many ways. But what do you think is attributable to his some would call it his genius his innovation is it just his superior intellect is it an outside the box thinking mentality that leads him to do all of these revolutionary things with his various companies um, what's different about him that has brought you know retro rocket landings and all the amazing things he's done with SpaceX in the last few years nothing nothing
1: absolutely nothing all of this is barely standard technology that's been around a long time what he saw was a business opportunity because basically Locking and Boeing had divided up the space business in the US between them and were competing as a monopoly, essentially charging outrageous amounts of money for relatively old technology. And he realized he could come in with the same technology, be willing to take a few chances in development and testing, and end up with a product that would undercut his competition by a factor of five or 10, which is exactly what happened. Hmm. So reusability is nice. NASA had been playing around with it uh, with the concept for a while, but they just never got around to doing anything about it because they were afraid of the risk. Elon was willing to take the risk, and it worked just fine. Lockheed and Boeing, they would have taken the risk if somebody would have given them 20 times more money than Elon had spent on it.
0: Sure. It was my understanding prior to making that work with the early renditions of the, the Falcon One and the Falcon Nine, uh, you know, which now is sort of an ordinary thing. It's, it's more surprising when they don't land than when they do at this point. But it was my understanding that a lot of experts in the industry, engineers and scientists thought that that was really just not possible, not to say physically possible, but just with our current technology that it just couldn't be done. What led so many people to being naysayers on that? Was it just the lack of capital and investment?
1: Well, really the lack of testing. One of the things that's really enlightening is uh, if you go onto YouTube, you can look at the reels of V2 testing shots from the Germans in World War II. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you can you can build hardware is you can analyze the problem, you can model it, you can run simulations, or you can just build the sucker, launch it, see if it works. <laughs> Building it and launching it was what the Germans did because they didn't really have the sophisticated analytical techniques we have today, but they also didn't have a lot of time. But time is money. Time means that you've got a big engineering staff that's going around and charging against your account and burning money. And the faster you turn things over, the faster you test and take chances, the quicker and cheaper things are going to happen and you get failures. But... Any sort of failure like this is only a failure if you don't learn anything from it. And so Elon had lots of failures, Mm -hmm. but he learned from his failures. And if you look at the V2 loops, you find that they had hundreds of failures, some of them just spectacular explosions. But what they did was they figured out what went wrong. They fixed it and tried it again, and they kept trying it until it worked. (laughs) And that's really what you would need to do if you want to have rapid advancement in space technology it's
0: always surprising to me when a rocket does fail that somehow the engineers can pick up all the tiny little pieces and figure out you know what it's kind of like a a building that's burnt to the ground and there's nothing but ash but then you sit through that and figure out how it started and i remember when the the first falcon heavy was launched a few years back and the center core failed to make its landing on the drone ship and you know exploded in the ocean a few hundred yards off the ship but somehow they managed to recover and, and figure out, I would assume from the, the data and the relays, that they didn't have enough igniter fluid for the, the liquid engines yeah. uh, and they weren't able to restart in time. And I, I'm always impressed by their ability to retroactively figure that out when all you have is a, a pile of scrap metal <laughs> on the back end.
1: One guy that I knew when I was a missile launch officer, another missile launch officer, had been a crew on the early Atlas ICBMs. Mm-hmm. And so he had actually been to Vandenberg Air Force Base, the Western Test Range and launched a few atlases out over the Pacific for testing. And the general attitude was that a successful launch was one that actually made it into the water. Whether you made it into the water in your target in Kwajalein, 6,000 miles away, or just past the surf line in California. Because if you just passed the surf line, they weren't able to pick up all the pieces and figure out who messed up. And from his point of view, being a missile crew, he was not that keen on finding out who who messed up. Hmm. I always thought that was an interesting attitude. Uh,
0: yeah, it's an ambitious perspective and at least a positive one. So are you surprised at this point that, I mean, I am a little bit, but perhaps I just underestimate how complicated it is that SpaceX has now been doing this retro rocket landing and saving enormous costs and reusing their rockets for years and no one Boeing Lockheed, anyone really is a serious competitor in that space. Uh, the Indian Space Research Agency is now experimenting with a reusable kind of rocket, and I I think they're looking at launching that later this year, early next. But are you surprised that it's taken this long? I, I kind of look at that as an analogy to like Tesla with the autopilot driving, and you have these giant auto companies, Ford and Chrysler and Toyota, and yet for years now Tesla has had some version of autopilot, and it seems like these giant corporations are just perpetually lagging behind.
1: Well. No, actually not. And again, it's more of a structural and administrative issue than a technical issue and more of an economic issue. The problem is that if you're the first into a niche like SpaceX, then it's easier for you to dominate that niche. So to pay off your development costs, you need to fly a lot of fly a lot of payloads. If you're the guy who has this track record of success, you can essentially command all the all the payloads and all the revenue from that stream. Anybody else that wants to break in is going to have to compete head to head with you. And what Elon and SpaceX have done is cut costs down to the bone. So there's not a lot of fat there. When Elon got in, there was a huge amount of fat from the Boeing uh, Lockheed Monopoly. And he was able to very successfully undercut them. And you have to ask yourself, how many private payloads does Boeing and Lockheed launch these days? Hmm. And it's essentially none. They only launch government payloads because it's only the government who can afford that kind of price and who, as a policy decision, keeps these guys in the launch business. So anybody that wants to break in at Elon's level is going to have to compete with Elon, which is not so easy. Hmm. What Boeing and Lockheed have done Their joint venture is called United Launch Alliance, is that they're building a whole new launcher, basically with the same technology they have for their previous launchers. But this is another administrative thing. Your previous launchers, you've been charging the government a big pile of money to use. You can't turn around and take those same launchers and offer to launch payloads for other people and private companies for a different price. Right. That will land you in federal prison. So, what they've had to do is they've had to essentially develop an entirely new launcher that says, Oh, this one, we were very clever. And now we can offer this three or four times lower price than our previous launchers because we're so brilliant. Hmm.
0: I've heard Elon criticize the cost plus pricing model of NASA. And, you know, indeed, when I look at it, it seems foolish in terms of almost incentivizing private vendors and and partners with the government to inflate their costs for the sake of maximizing the dollars that they can take from the the federal budget on various projects.
1: Yeah, that's a complex discussion that's probably best over a beer.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. I'll hold you to it. So is there a place then for the government? We've obviously heard Elon say that he's building starship or I'm not sure what they're calling it these days. They've changed the name several times, but his aim has been from the beginning to get us to Mars, human sustainable colonization. And people have criticized that can't be done, it won't be done. There's no there's no role for private sector there because there's no certainty as to the profit motive. Uh Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson has been publicly pronounced about this saying that because you don't have a, a certainty as to your economic return, it's not something that the private sector is positioned to do. I'm cautiously optimistic because every time he says something that he's going to do and people say, yeah, that'll never happen. I just hold my breath because it, eventually it does. His timelines are always a little extremely, extremely ambitious, but uh, yeah. you know, eventually he seems to reach the finish line. So I guess my question is, do you think that's going to happen on the private side or do you think that the government's role is still in Pushing the boundaries of exploration, whereas private sector will serve the routine sort of logistics to and from low Earth orbit.
1: Well, I think there's a really strong role for private sector and for government. But I'll throw out a historical analogy. Columbus sailed west to get to China because he was interested in tapping into that market. Mm -hmm. There's a business case you could make. Of course, the Americas were in the way. And so ask yourself Columbus discovered America in. 1492, when did America actually start turning a profit for anybody who came over here? And you could easily argue that that was not until the Spanish encountered the Aztecs in the 1520s. So they kept at it for 30 years, hoping eventually to find a way to China and the economic return that they were expecting, but they weren't getting it at all. Mm -hmm. And then They happened to stumble over several cities of gold and triple the world's supply of precious metals.
0: Do you think that, because I've heard that analogy before, I think it's an interesting one, and actually Dr. Tyson usually uses that in the the same topic. And and so the argument, I think, from the devil's advocate point of view is that when the Portuguese and the Spanish set off in search of this trade route to the West Indies and, and to China, there was sort of a light at the end of the tunnel in, in that you know they knew what they were after and there was a, a certain goal, but we just didn't know how many obstacles or in this case continents we would have to cross to get there. In the case of saying we're going to put a, a human colony, whether it be on Mars or even the moon, The payout or the return, I I think, is more speculative. I mean, there's certainly supplies of precious metals and uh, rare earth elements out in space that space mining. And I'm sure we'll get to that in this hour. But um, do you think that it's more speculative in the sense that investors would look at that and go, well, here's why your comparison isn't apt? Because, you know, when the Spanish were going over to the other side of the world, they knew they had a market there for their products and trade, whereas we're going to a desert planet where people will probably die along the way. And we have no idea what, how we're going to turn this into a, an economically prosperous business model.
1: Well, I'll throw out two ideas here. The first thing is that the Portuguese actually had thrown Columbus out of the country because Columbus made this proposal about sailing west. And it got peer-reviewed by the scientists of the time. And the scientists of the time knew how big the Earth was. And they knew Columbus was just full of it. (laughs) He got terrible reviews. And they also knew that the real distances involved were simply outside the range of the ships that were available at the time. That if there wasn't the Americas in the way, they would die simply from things like starvation and scurvy and running out of fresh water. The Spanish were no dummies either. They sent the proposal out for peer review, and it just got utterly panned. Columbus was just lucky to have gotten his uh, little expedition funded. And so the point is, there are enough unknowns that I can't really project what the cost benefit is going to be and what the product is going to be. Mm -hmm. I know that in exploration, a big chunk of the benefit is finding things that you don't know or understand at the time. And so I'm pretty sure there are no solid platinum asteroids. I'm pretty sure that uh, returning mined metals to Earth is not going to be a viable cost model. But I'm also pretty sure when you start building a, a space infrastructure that you can do all sorts of amazing things. And I think that's the important part is that it gives you the chance to start building up this infrastructure and changing the cost calculations for a variety of things that I have no clue about. Mm-hmm. And I've got an economics background, but what I know about is the mineralogy of asteroids and, and the moon. So I will leave the business cases to other people.
0: Sure. If you had to put your money on government versus private in terms of reaching even the moon or Mars next, do you think we'll see Elon and his company get there first? Or do you think uh, we'll go back as a as a government agency here in the U.S. or some other country?
1: I think it's more likely that Elon and Bezos, and these fabulously wealthy guys are likely to take the chances necessary to beat NASA almost any place.
0: Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. You mentioned mineralogy and and geology, so I guess this is as good a time as any to talk a little about the Exolith Lab. So I guess the, the general question for those who may be listening to this episode and not really understand the purpose, why do we study this? Why are we interested in dirt on the Moon or dirt on Mars?
1: Well, if you want to explore Mars or you want to operate on the moon, you need to test the materials, test the hardware that you build. And the whole idea is that when you're testing, you want to test as realistically as possible. So you try to simulate the environment. You try to simulate the mineralogy. You try to simulate the texture of the soil. And that's what Exolith does, is we try to develop high mineralogical fidelity simulants, for the surface material of asteroids or the moon or Mars, and make those available to the scientific and exploration community. And it's a service that we do in partnership with NASA to try to make standardized, reliable materials readily available.
0: How does that partnership work? Are they um, are they just partially funded by NASA? Is there some other type of arrangement?
1: Well, it's part of the Center for Lunar and Asteroid Surface Science, which I run. And that's a node of the NASA Solar System Exploration Virtual Institute. And so we get funding to do a lot of different exploration-related projects. And one of our exploration-related projects is to stand up the excellence lab and make these highly scientifically relevant simulants available to the science and exploration community.
0: So... In terms of the Exolith Labs product line, you have several different simulants that are based on lunar regolith. And so you have Mare and the lunar highlands, which for listeners that may not be familiar, is different topographies on the moon. And the reason why um, that fidelity can be as high as it is, is that we've been there before. We have the Apollo missions who brought back samples and from which we can analyze and get a, a keen sense of what that looks like. But the Exolith lab also offers simulants for other surfaces, including the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. So how, since we've never been there and we've never recovered a sample and brought it back to Earth, how do we have any idea what a, a simulant for that would
1: look like? Well, fundamentally, we make a guess, but it's an educated guess. What we have is knowledge of extraterrestrial geology, and that limits the range of possible minerals. We have remote sensing data which further constrain the possible things that make up these moons. And we have formation scenarios based on our knowledge of physics. All of these things can go into narrowing down the range of possibilities. And so given our limited information, we do a reasonable job in bracketing the possibilities. Got it.
0: So the the spectroscopy that we use in remote sensing lets us know correct me if I'm wrong, the the basic composition of the surface of a a moon like Phobos.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. it works really well if you have transparent, highly optically active minerals. Hmm. But something like Phobos and Deimos, you actually don't have that. These things look a little bit darker than copy machine toner. (laughs) So it looks black. But that tells you something. The fact that it is that black... You can go and look at other things in the solar system that are that black. And it's a reasonable chance that the reason they're that dark is because they have similar mineralogies.
0: Yeah, that lets you know about their composition and allows you to speculate about what the soil or the surface might be like.
1: Well, and remember, I can be wrong. So if you're afraid of being wrong, you should probably find another job.
0: The scientific frontier is not the place.
1: Yeah, scientific frontiers are not for you.
0: Well, that's great. We're here today with Dr. Dan Britt talking about space exploration, space commerce, and uh, space ventures into the future. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
1: The cybersecurity field needs versatile professionals to keep up with new and constant cyber threats. At American Public University, you'll acquire vital certifications, foundational knowledge, and the cutting-edge skills to protect and defend your organization from
0: harm. Start making a difference in the world of cybersecurity today. Apply now at study at apu.com. Welcome back to Intellectable. We're here today with Dr. Dan Britt from UCF talking about space exploration, space commerce, and all things space related. So when we left off, we were discussing Dan's work leading the Exolith lab which is a joint venture between NASA and UCF here in Orlando, Florida, for the purposes of production of simulants, essentially dirt from different planets and moons in the solar system that you can buy and as close as possible that we can get to something you might find if you were actually there. So in terms of the sale of this product, is it by the kilogram or by the ton or by the ounce? How does that work?
1: Well, it's by the kilogram. One thing I should say is that we don't sell to just anyone. We're not in the commercial business. So what we do is we sell to people who are doing research, exploration, education, so institutions that are involved in that. If you want to build a little garden out of Mars Simulant in your backyard, we're not your guys. But if you want to do research projects on growing plants on Mars, then by all means, we'll be happy to work with you.
0: Perfect. I'll keep that in mind if I just want a bag of moon dirt for my desk. But uh, this way, at least researchers and and teachers and educators know where they can find you. Yeah, and uh, we'll make sure that we include the URL for your your lab site and whatnot in our description. So you mentioned earlier something that I, I wanted to probe a bit deeper on. You said that mining and returning of Earth or rare earth elements to Earth from space is probably not a, a viable business model. If I heard you correctly, but I, I feel like a lot of people are heading in that direction or or leaning on that as a major industry. I know that I've read in several places that people think the world's first trillionaire will be someone who tackles space mining, you know, first and best, so to speak. So did I hear you right in terms of the fact that you don't think that that's going places in the way that others do?
1: Well, I think more reliably, I can say that I don't know. Gotcha. I have my doubts as to whether returning material to the surface of the earth is a viable operation. Mm Mm-hmm. But building large structures in space might be the way to become the first trillionaire. Beamed power, manufacturing in space, all of these things are certainly within the realm of possibility.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, so in terms of, of the doubts that you do have, and I think it's fair to have those doubts because we're so early on in this process, but what about it is is most doubtful? Is, is it the logistics of just being able to manage the trips back and forth? Is it getting to them and, and conducting the mining in space? Is there a particular piece of it, or is it just the fact that the whole idea seems crazy
1: at this point? Well, I don't think the idea is crazy. We return things to the surface of the Earth all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, samples from the moon, samples from asteroids. So there's nothing crazy about it. The issue is whether you can make money or not. And that's something that I really don't know. And it's one of the long list of things I don't know.
0: I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that part of, of NASA's agenda, and you know, maybe not necessarily for, for space mining, but is to sort of lasso, for lack of a better term, an asteroid and put it into orbit around our moon for further study and you know, maybe even an infrastructure there. Do you think that's a potential stepping stone to an industry like this?
1: Well, potentially. This was part of a NASA mission during the Obama administration where the idea was to, it was called the asteroid redirect, where you could put a, a small asteroid in a in a distant lunar orbit and that was an idea i was involved in a scientific team that studied that and it's certainly something that's viable and on the table it's just hard to move bulky objects around in space because you're up against fundamental physical limitations in terms of thrust and energy
0: hmm. If space mining isn't necessarily where it's at, or at least not in the near term, I know that some entrepreneurs, Sir Richard Branson and others, are looking at space tourism. And it's kind of a loose definition because obviously we can articulate you know, whether we're talking about truly orbital trajectories or suborbital stuff where you're only in the weightlessness of space for a few moments. But do you see that coming to fruition as soon as, I know Branson was hoping to have flights in the air on Virgin Galactic within like I think two thousand nine was the original target date. And you know, here we are eleven years later, two pilots lost their lives in a test crash several years ago, and they're still sort of going through, as I understand it, the final steps for the FAA approvals and, and safety checks. Do you see that exploding in the near term, or do you think we're still years or decades out from really having a sustainable space tourism industry?
1: Well, it's really hard for me to say. I do observe that when there are tourist slots available to go off and hang out in the International Space Station. They don't have that much trouble selling them mm-hmm. for a lot of money. I will observe that people pay six figures to uh, be drug up the site of Mount Everest and take about a 1% chance of dying for tourism. So I would say that uh, it's very much in the realm of possibility. There are plenty of people that would like to experience that.
0: Now, so a corollary that I think is worth asking you about is something I had written an article about, I guess it, probably at this point, it might've been last year, but alongside Elon's ambitious plans for colonizing Mars at some point in the future, there's also this parallel plan to use the same or similar launch vehicles to do intra-planetary city to city travel by rocket that would take an airplane trip between New York City and Australia is like, 30 something hours, I think, but you could do it conceivably at rocket speeds in like 35 minutes. So do you see that just from an aviation standpoint that that's as viable or, or more or less so than the space tourism
1: piece? Quite possibly and quite possibly more viable. The issue, of course, is going to be safety. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the issues that people are realizing is how much travel like that do you actually need to do? Because uh, COVID has certainly calmed down the kind of fevered level of travel that we were indulging in this world.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that until now, but you're right. People are realizing how, with how little travel they can manage their lives.
1: Yeah, but if I was going to expose myself to a crowded room of people, 35 minutes would be better than 30 hours.
0: I would agree. I haven't traveled on an airplane that often for that long but at six foot two it's a miserable experience if you don't have a first class seat yep i've wondered how that would work in terms of managing the g-forces associated you know you're obviously not going to launch at saturn 5 g-forces but you've got to find some balance so that some type of market would not vomit projectly throughout your spacecraft while you're on route so it's got to be modest in that respect but of course the slower you reach your altitude, the more fuel you burn and the more expensive it becomes. So I've, I've wondered how they're going to make that work and be competitive with commercial airline travel. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, Do you see any other opportunities in space in terms of, of industries or opportunities for businesses to create a profit model that we haven't already discussed. Uh, I know we talked mining, we talked tourism and the exploration for its own purpose in terms of understanding and furthering our knowledge, scientific breakthrough of course has it's merits, but is there anything out there that that we've overlooked in terms of, you know, opportunities economically speaking?
1: Well, part of the mining is fuel extraction. And I think that's probably some of the low-hanging fruit here. Either fuel extraction from water on the moon or volatile asteroids. Part of it is also in orbital servicing of spacecraft, of satellites.
0: When you say fuel harvesting, I assume what you're referencing is a way that we might be able to refuel spacecraft in space so that they're not having to carry everything with them along voyages back and forth across the solar system.
1: Correct. Getting a kilo of fuel off the planet usually takes many, many kilos of fuel to get up to altitude, Mm -hmm. get into orbit. And so if you can eliminate that step, you have a huge advantage and a built-in market for that fuel because there are lots of satellites in various orbits that could extend their lives quite a bit by refueling or modest servicing. And that's an entire market that is up there.
0: It's funny you mentioned that. I remember watching a documentary about Dr. Bob Zubrin's Mars One proposal, which goes back several decades, but essentially the idea was to just send rockets to Mars on sort of a recycling mission of back and forth every two years. But right. the plan, if I remember correctly, was to generate fuel from the Martian atmosphere, from the constituent elements found there, so it could just sit there over time and, and the rocket could have some type of chemical process that fills up the fuel tank just from you know the air around it.
1: Yep. Well, typically your rocket fuel is oxygen liquid oxygen or an oxidizer and some sort of complex hydrocarbon or hydrogen. And you can get a big chunk of that. You can get the oxygen directly from the Martian atmosphere because it's mostly carbon dioxide. So there's two oxygen atoms there. You get a carbon. Your challenge is to find a little bit of hydrogen to mate up with the carbon, but there's a lot of potential for making fuel in all of these places.
0: Do you see any of the more experimental and less fuel dependent propulsion options that that are being tested today the M drive the ion engine the solar sail which of course you know has its limitations in terms of the speed of your acceleration but uh do you see those being competitive as opposed to having to make you know stops at proverbial gas stations in space
1: well it depends on the mission and how much of a hurry you're you're in the advantage of ion propulsion is that it's extremely efficient, but it's low thrust. So you have to be patient about where you're going. But you can design your your programs and your hardware with that in mind. Same with a solar sail. You have to be patient. So I think the critical thing is to have a lot of tools in the toolbox. And that way you can design missions smartly for best results and optimize what you got.
0: Some would argue that we all benefit if we welcome participation from China and from Russia and even nations with whom we might have differences in other foreign affairs arenas to the stage. But if we're out for economic superiority, then that would seem to be kind of a a capitalist perspective where we'd want to we'd want to be there first and and treat other nations as competition. So is there a a middle ground?
1: Well, I, I disagree with with that is necessarily the capitalist point of view. Um, what you find is that that's kind of a mercantilist attitude, is that you get there first, you exclude everybody else. Mm. And what we found is that freer trade works great for almost everybody concerned. That's really the lesson of economic development. And so there are competitive advantages that some groups have relative to others and you maximize your returns by training amongst those competitive advantages no big deal keep it open
0: got it so if i understand correctly you you would not hesitate to partner to pitch the question a different way are there any countries or entities around the world that you would turn your back on in terms of, of partnership you know would you advise for example that nasa not work with any particular country or would you say hey you know everybody's welcome into this this joint effort
1: well the thing is that Just like the oceans are open to everybody who wants to travel them, space is like that also. You don't want to necessarily pick and choose who should be the winners and who should be the losers because you don't know everything. And you might be able to take huge advantage of other people's discoveries and explorations. That's fair. So that's, again, kind of outside of my wheelhouse as to who I would work with. What I'd rather do is work with smart people. And smart people come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm switching gears slightly here for perhaps a last question or two. But given what you know about the abundance of asteroids in and around the solar system, do you think that we're doing enough? And by we, I mean the global community in general. Obviously, NASA has the NEO search program. But do you think our efforts at this point are sufficient? Are people who worry about asteroid impacts being alarmist? Or are we not putting enough attention to this?
1: Well... We've looked at the asteroid impact problem quite a bit, and it's not a huge problem on a day-to-day basis. It is a huge problem over the geologic timescale. So every so often, you get a big asteroid impact that destroys 80% of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. That would be bad. That doesn't happen very often. Last time it happened was 65 million years ago, and it's a reason that this planet is dominated by mammals rather than dinosaurs. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's okay, but there's two different issues here, finding asteroids that are potentially dangerous, which is something that NASA is working on, and finding asteroids that are potentially economically advantageous. And those two don't overlap. That's a different set of orbital parameters and size ranges. And so it's actually something that we probably need to do to help with future space industry, is to find more of these small dark asteroids in the right kind of orbits to potentially exploit for minerals and fuel.
0: Got it. When we look at the asteroid that caused the Chicxulub crater in Mexico and what we believe to have wiped out the dinosaur 65 million years ago, and we compare that with the frequency, as you mentioned, of these kinds of events over the timeline of the Earth, are we overdue at this point for another one? Statistically speaking, is it safe to say we might have another 100 million years to go, or are we about ready for another impact?
1: Well, we certainly don't have another 100 million years ago. But remember, primates have not been around that long. Mm-hmm. Our species amongst primates is only about you know 100,000 years old, 70,000 years old. So that's a blink in geologic time. This is a problem of geologic time. So is this a, an actual threat to our species? Well, a modest one. but. You buy insurance for lots of reasons, Mm -hmm. and you mostly buy insurance because you're worried about low probability events. So this is a fairly cheap uh, insurance policy. I had talked to a FEMA guy right after the uh, Chelyabinsk explosion where a small asteroid had exploded over a Russian city and broke a lot of glass and injured a couple thousand people. And I said, well, what would have happened if that would have been over Cincinnati instead of Chelyabinsk? And he said, well, it's simple. I would be looking for a job right now because I would have been fired. Hmm. And this is one of these things where what are you willing to accept? The risk is modest. And, you know, occasionally injuring two or three thousand people is something that happens. Is that an important thing to guard against? A lot more people uh, uh, injure themselves on the roads. But I really doubt that if you're worried about risk, one of the ways you reduce risk, that we all reduce risk, is we wear seatbelts. Mm-hmm. You know, is that seatbelt going to save you today? Probably not. But I wouldn't think of driving out of my driveway without the seatbelt on, simply because why take that chance? And it does take me 10 seconds and a little bit of elbow effort to put the seatbelt on. But that's worth the cost and risk reduction.
0: Sure. It's uh, low frequency, but very high severity when it does happen. Maybe there's a market out there for asteroid impact-proof buildings and glass.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it, uh, it would be a lot cheaper just to look for the asteroids and then divert them.
0: Before the damage is done, sure.
1: Yeah, before the damage is done.
0: Well, excellent, Dan. I, I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and perspectives on these topics. And thanks for joining me today for this episode of Inelectable.
1: Sure.
0: Anything else you wanted to add before we close?
1: Just to say that we're lucky in that we're in a golden age of exploration. The last golden age we had was back in the 1500s. And the nice thing is that a mass audience gets to participate in this on a daily basis. And I think that's one of the most exciting things that's happening right now is that it's not just a idle elites venture, but it's something that, that everybody in the society can participate in.
0: I think that's uh A great way to close, and I hope more people will participate. So, I want to thank you again. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. You can learn more about these topics and more by visiting the various APUS sponsored blogs, including In Space News, where we have a lot of space related articles and content from our faculty. Be well and stay safe, everyone. Thank you very much. For more information about our university, visit us at at studyapu.com. APU